This recording is a presentation that Colin Turner gave to the Intermountain STC chapter. The presentation is titled, Building Better Screencasts from Concept to Publication. Colin Turner is a multimedia wizard. He has been an instructional designer, a multimedia director, part project manager, technical writer. You can find out more about him at colinturner.com. That's Colin with two L's, C-O-L-L-I-N, turner.com. And you can also find more, find out more about the Intermountain STC chapter, uh, the group that he presented this to, at intermountain-stc.org. Intermountain STC is essentially Utah. So if you live in Utah and you're a technical writer, definitely check out the chapter and get involved in all the offerings that are going on. Also, if you're a member of another chapter and you're enjoying this recording, I encourage you to also record your chapter's presenters. It's not hard to record. Uh, you can get some equipment fairly cheaply, and it's a great opportunity to get more into the multimedia world um, to, to start recording audio and publishing audio on the web, and many people benefit. You may only have a, a dozen people come to your meetings, but I guarantee you that at least 300 people will probably download your, your recordings and you'll reach a, a global audience. So the presentation is about an hour long, and if you want to know more about the Intermountain STC, go to the, the link on the show notes. If you want to know more about Colin, you can find contact information on his website. Hello. Oh, thanks. <laughs> if you, I'm, I'm really informal, as if you couldn't tell. If you have any questions or anything like that during this, just ask, really. This is, I, I know where I want to wind up. So other, other than that, we're, you know, just feel free to interrupt with questions and I'll do my best to answer them. If you want to go ahead and click. Um, all right, screencasting. I'm sure all of you know what that is. You basically, you know, you're at a computer, you're capturing screens of information and then modifying them to be a presentation. Now, as, as Tom said, this is, I, I've seen this become more of a, a, a mode that tech writers work in lately, especially in the last couple of years. So I'm gonna, what I'm gonna cover in this is not really how to use the software, but how to actually, from beginning to end, produce a screencast and aim it at different delivery medium. So that's kind of what we're gonna cover here. So go ahead and click. All right. First thing you want to do, of course, is start with concept. Generally, we're given that concept. You know, someone says, all right, I'll give you an example of what I did, of how I got started in this. Um, we wanted to teach people how to use an online video tool to create, store, and present video for a, a web-based audience. And they said, they, they kind of gave me these really loose scripts and said, we want you to create 120 of these. You have two weeks to do it. And uh, the voice talent will be coming at some point to do it. But you need to write the scripts first. And most of what I had to write the scripts from was based on, on you know, recorded conversations and development meetings. And it was obviously in early, early beta, so I didn't really have anything that I could see that functioned the way it was going to at the end, so I kind of had to guess. Now, 
you kind of have to decide exactly how you want this to work. I mean, is this going to be a demo? Is it going to be a tutorial? Is it going to be conceptual, meaning that you're kind of presenting something, pulling it out of the ether and, and putting it in a cohesive package and then giving it to somebody? Or is it just out of the box where you're blending all of these? Okay, screencasts can even run to software simulations. Um, as Tom said, uh, choose your own adventure path. Um, a lot of the software now is branching, which means that if they click this or click this, it'll lead off in two totally different directions. You can make them function like software, make them function like websites, you can make them do anything. So people are actually in a simulated environment using the product. So you can kind of see how this becomes very important as you start creating and laying out the, the presentation. And of course, the most important thing that we all know is who's going to actually be seeing this, reviewing it, using it, that kind of thing. So you need to really tailor that for that. Next slide, please. So pre-production. You need to figure out what I need to make this. Hopefully, you already have it. <laughs> um, often, you won't have everything you need because you'll need things like recorders. You'll need... Um, some very odd things is I found that certain computer and hardware combinations, you know, software and co hardware combinations don't work well when you're doing this. So, you know, you have to have like something that can handle a lot of video. Um, so relatively powerful, fast computer. Something where your sound device or sound card is compatible with the software. When Captivate first came out, it was not compatible with one of the most common onboard audio cards that you could ever find in a, in a computer. So almost every Dell out there didn't work with it. Um, a lot of gateways didn't work with it. You pre I had to go out and buy a, a Sound Blaster USB external sound card to actually use it. So you have to make sure you've got all these bases covered because otherwise it's not going to work well. Um, resources, meaning voice talent, developers, SMEs, anyone like that that's going to help you put this together. You need to make sure all of that is available to you. And anything miscellaneous that comes up, which means a quiet room, um, proper lighting, you know, cameras. A webcam on a laptop doesn't work very well. So good cameras helps. And then you gotta get what you need. And as we're all familiar with this, this kind of goes into the same thing as, I think of it as gathering content. We all know how hard that is sometimes. So if you have to sit on someone's desk and camp out in their office in order to get what you need, you do it. Because it will really hold up. All the red tape that I encounter at my job can hold up a project six months. So make a list, present it, get it signed off, get POs, get whatever you need, and just do it. The next thing that I found through a hard lesson is do I have full buy-in? Because if some people know what, what you're doing and other people don't, and they all happen to be executives, you're going to have a war going on and then people are going to try and get in there and mess with what you're doing. So you need to make sure that everyone who needs to sign off on it knows exactly what you're doing and exactly what the concept is. And all agree. Because otherwise it stalls everything. The consumption medium, is this going to be on the web? Is it going to be a CD, DVD, kiosk? Is it going to be broadcast? You know, anything else you can possibly think of. You need to know how it's going to be delivered. And then the condition of the subject, again, is it on paper? Is it a wireframe? Is it a beta, a pre-beta release candidate? Or is it already out there and you're just adding documentation to it? 
Um, doing a screencast on something where you've got buttons changing and all that kind of stuff, unless you really like digging in Photoshop on, on these slides, um, you stall it as long as possible and get yourself at least a release candidate to uh, start documenting. Because you can replace slides, but it's messy. Or it can get messy. Scheduling. Once you have everything you need, you've got your subject, you've got your talent, your scripts, everything together, you need to schedule when to do this and where to do it. And if that includes recording somebody reading a script, you need to make sure you've got a quiet room somewhere. Um, if it means video, you know, make sure you're in a place where you can record video. I've done a lot of this at home just because no one's there during the daytime. Everyone's gone. It's quiet. <laughs> I, can make it, I can make a soundproof room if I want. So, and then scheduling like any meetings that need to be done to help plan it, anything like that. You're kind of a project manager on this, but we're all kind of used to taking that role when we need to, so you're familiar with it. And then prepare. This is really important. I don't know how many other people have experienced this, but a lot of times I am the voice talent. I am the one on video. I am the one doing this. It's really, it takes a little bit of practice to be able to sit there and move around, read a script, and watch your recording all at the same time. The multitasking meter goes way up, and you're just sitting there going, and if your voice stumbles, you have to start over again. So, and it helps if you actually read it while you're going through it, even if you're not recording it. So do a lot of dry runs. That's how it works. Go ahead. All right. I think, and I could be presu presuming this, but I believe that storyboards are probably the most crucial piece of creating a screencast ever. Um, it doesn't matter what you use. I've used whiteboards, sticky notes, moleskin. How many of you are familiar with moleskin notebooks? They're awesome. I love them. I have like five at one time. Um, they actually create one that is storyboard layout. It has boxes that you can do, but you don't need to do that. Just grab a notebook and draw on paper. Um, word processor actually works as a storyboard because you can drop in pictures, do whatever. Um, specialized software, they actually do make it in... Oh, I didn't clean that slide up, sorry about that. Um, specialized software, they make a... If any of you are familiar with mind mapping software, it's kind of like a flowchart, but it's more dynamic. Kind of has bubbles that go everywhere and you just drag things around, it moves the entire drawing around. I use that a lot to when I get into more creative work. Um, FreeMind is a free application is Java-based, so it runs on pretty much anything. Um, it's available on SourceForge. Uh, you've got Storyboard Pro, which is a Mac and PC product. They have a free trial, but that one is a specific storyboarding program. Let you kind of write out, leave bullet points, even do the script on it, and then draw, drop in images into it also. Um, Springboard PC, again, another it's a PC-only app, but it's also a storyboarding program. And as I mentioned, FreeMind. These are important because a lot of times, if we're not totally in charge of the project, we still have to present it to somebody before we record it. So obviously you want the storyboard. Honestly, my favorite out of these is the sticky notes. I'll get like a whiteboard, and I will start drawing on sticky notes, and I'll put them all over the place, and I can move them around, and it's just costs nothing, no maintenance, and it's just quick. So if somebody comes in your room and says, show me how this is going to work, you start throwing sticky notes on a board and drawing on them and writing on them, they'll get the idea really quick. And it's also dynamic. 
So if you have to do branching, for instance, and does everyone understand what branching is? If you have to do branching, for instance, if you are like halfway down your path and you realize, okay, this isn't gonna work that way, I need to change this around, you can just sit there and conceptualize everything by moving these sticky notes around, following different paths, creating different branches, whatever. So sticky notes are my favorite. They also look really impressive because they think you're saving them money by not having to make them buy software. So go ahead and go to the next slide. This one, writing the script for production. Um, yeah, what can I say about that? How many of you guys have actually written scripts? This was an interesting thing. I um, started a company back in the 90s and um, it started out as a multimedia company. So, you know, I thought I knew about writing scripts. And then we got a television deal. And I realized I didn't know squat about writing scripts. Um, I didn't know the timing that was involved. I didn't know, you know, I didn't take into consideration using a stopwatch or how people read things compared to other people. And how even the type of presentation, are they using an accent? Do they have an accent? Um, you know, all these things influence how your script goes. So when you're scripting, it's really, this isn't a hard and fast rule because I'm not a pro with scripting. The best thing I found is keep it very, very simple. You know, of course, keep your target audience. You know, if you're going for, for developers, you want something that's technical. If you're going for just a, a user on the web who is a casual web user, then you want it, obviously, you don't want to be using something heavily technical. Um, so keep your script simple, read it through aloud, okay? Um, just monitor the flow, how your script sounds, avoid tongue twisters, everything like that. Do you have a question? Oh, no, sorry. Okay. Um, you know, avoid tongue twisters, everything. The person who is reading it will very often ad-lib to it to kind of suit, they kind of morph into the script a little bit. They'll start ad-libbing into it and that's okay as long as they don't go way off on a tangent and start a speech, you know, you're, you're fine. So kind of let them have flow with it. Just give them, I, I see the script as kind of an outline for how you want it done. Talk to the person reading it, make sure they understand the product and what you're trying to do and then go through it, do, do a few dry runs with it before. If you're using software, make them use it and then kind of write down what they're saying as they're using it. Um, things like that. Just capture what you can, keep it simple, read it out loud, make sure it flows and sounds okay, and then just go. And you'll actually be okay with the script. Um, with audio, you know, you wanna make sure also that you're, you know, gonna have an idea of where you're gonna be recording it. You know, a room like this, you don't have to worry so much except for the acoustics. You know, this recording is gonna sound different than that recording, obviously. So take that into account. If I were recording in here for a presentation, I would lower my voice a little bit and I would slow down the pace so the echo doesn't come in and kill me on the mic if I only have a standing microphone. If I'm in a, like a quiet room, I'm gonna to wanna to talk louder, a little bit faster, I can get away with that because there's no echoes to deal with or anything like that. So that's kinda of how it works. It's interesting, try it and experiment and see what happens and how it functions in your environment. Um, screen size and quality. Um, oh, well, here. 
These two are really important. Record the audio before you create your presentation. Um, a lot of these, a lot of the software works on timelines. So when you start recording, it's actually calculating about how long it's going to take to move a mouse from here to here, and the click, and then the screen transition. And you know, if you have, if you've typed in text, a lot of times it will calculate how long it takes to read that text. So you want to capture all of that before you put in your audio, because many of these programs take the audio and measure the timeout, and then go ahead and insert it into your presentation. And then you create keyframes to kind of keep the pace going before transitions. So if you can, definitely record before you do the presentation. Otherwise, you're going to be doing a lot more messy work with it. Um, and then save, of course, in the best possible format and convert down. You know, if you can record in just a, an uncompressed wave, uh, you know, a very, very high bitrate MP3, ACC, it doesn't matter. Just record in the highest possible uh, quality format you can. A lot of these programs also convert it down to based on whatever you're doing. Like Captivate, if you tell it you're going to put it on the web, it'll knock it down, you know, appropriately. So you're okay. Screen size, you know, most of us are familiar with this already if you document software or even work with software. I think right now the average is 1024 by 768. You know, if you remember when it was 640 by 480, good for you. <laughs> that means we've been doing this too long. Um, but yeah, you want to always keep your screen size in mind. Don't go over that because it's really messy to, to kind of knock this stuff down or, or shrink it. Uh, a lot of times you want to figure out whether you're going to actually record the toolbar and in like a browser or your software. So you will either select something, a setting in the program that says, you know, that's a variation on a 1024 by 768 screen. Um, we're also getting into widescreen computers, that little thing I think it's 1600 by 900, so it's wider than normal. You're not going to get a full screen in it, so you need to calculate for these things. Um, I always ask the developers what screen size that the software is developed for, and then ask the like marketing or whoever's going to put this out what screen size they use, and then hopefully they match. If they don't, then side with the developers. So, <laughs> um, environmental concerns. We've talked a little bit about this, audio and video. When you record audio, obviously you want to be in a really quiet place, so you don't have to do any tweaking of the audio, run any filters on it. Um, the same with video. You don't want distractions in the background. You know, kind of, how many of you do photography and video already? Kind of? This sort of works. Photography, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the rule of thirds. You divide the, your, you know, your, your, I'll say screen, because just for lack of a better word, into thirds, and you try not to drop anything in the middle. You look at what's in this third, what's in this third, and what's in this third. Video kind of works the same way, um, except it works better if you're tight on your subject. So if you're recording a person, you don't want a lot of space out here. You want to focus in here. And then you use the rule of thirds like on a face. You know, if, if what they say is going to be important. You want to make sure that their mouth is in a good place on the screen, that people can see it. If where their eyes are going is important, or you want to catch emotion, 
You know, just keep all that in mind. For a lot of these, you're not gonna have to worry so much about being a cinematographer. You're just gonna wanna capture the video so you're gonna tell them, all right, this is your box. Stay here, don't move. <laughs> and for God's sake, don't start slapping your hands when you're talking like I do. It creates problems. And the most important thing about video for web delivery is more movement, the higher the bandwidth requirements, and the worse the video looks. So tell them to keep still. It helps. Because a lot of these programs can actually put raw video on. You know, if you convert it to like flash video or QuickTime or even Windows Media, a lot of them can capture that and insert it into the screencast. So when that gets knocked down and you run a codec on it to compress the video, if they're doing this a lot, you're gonna get blurs, you're gonna get just, the video will start looking muddy and fuzzy and that will also, chances are that'll decrease your audio as well. Because these programs, when they start streaming, they kind of adjust the audio and video to keep a steady bit rate going out, you know, a steady pipe. So if there's a lot of movement in the video, it'll start reducing the audio to create more headspace, headroom for it. So you just want to keep those things in mind. All right, go ahead and go to the next one. All right, application of choice. This is where it gets tricky. How much money do you have on your project? Are they willing to buy you expensive software? Are they saying do it for free? Do you want to host it? Does someone else want to host it? These things take up a lot of bandwidth. So if you're not prepared for it, and you think it's going to be popular at all, either have a really good hosting plan or don't host it at all. Because when these things get hit really hard, like several thousand viewers a day, um, it gets really expensive to host these. So, a lot of these, most of these as a matter of fact, you will host wherever you want them to be, if you're putting them on the web. If you want them on a DVD, no worries. Screencaster, Screencast-O-Matic, Jing, and Screen Toaster, I mean. Those are all online tools. I believe Screencast-O-Matic, I haven't really ever used this one. I believe this one actually lets you convert the video to um, QuickTime, uh, Windows Media, or Flash, so you can actually download it when you create your product. Um, these are all browser-based, and they're actually really, really handy to use. I like these. But for a company use, um, a lot of times they're not that popular because you don't have your content. So you don't necessarily own your content. You've got space, bandwidth, and uh, time limitations, unless you buy the pro versions. So just keep that in mind. If you're doing a, a product for a client or a, or a company um, and they want to keep the content, probably these online tools are not for you to use. However, if say you want to train the technical support department, they say you've got two days to put together a presentation. The online tools are awesome because then you can just create it as you're going and then just send them a link and off they go. They hit it. And then you can just delete it when it's done or you know, make arrangements to move it off the server. Um, Copernicus, Macintosh app. I tried to keep this as operating system uh, open as I could. Uh, Copernicus is a Mac tool. It's fairly popular. I have not used it. Um, but uh, I know a couple of people who have and they, they like it. It's okay. It's not expensive, so it's a good option. Uh, Wink is free. It's very basic, very Windows looking, but it's absolutely free. And it goes out in Flash and uh, AVI format. 
so you can put it on video or put it on the web. Um, Cam Studio, uh, well, we were talking about that one. That's kind of like one of the early, early screencasting tools out there. And it works really well, and it is fairly inexpensive. Uh, Jing, Jing and Jing Pro are run by uh, Camtasia, the company that owns Camtasia, or does Camtasia. Um, it is their online version of this, and it is an incredible little tool. The only recommendation I have is have a pretty powerful computer if you're going to use it. So, same goes for Screencast-O-Matic and Screen Toaster. Um, you're going to need a computer with probably at least three, three to four uh, gig of RAM in it to really do it well, and of course a broadband connection. Otherwise, you start getting stuttering on the video when you start putting this all together. Uh, I Show You is another Macintosh tool which I'm not familiar with at all. Um, Adobe Captivate, if I have a preference, that one's it. Just because it lets you do branching, lets you do quizzes in SCORM format or a bunch of other formats. And it is the most expensive, but it's also probably the beefiest. But you can talk to someone who uses Camtasia Studio, and they'll tell you the same thing about it. So really, that's where the battle is between the expensive titles. Um, you know, they both run on Windows and Macintosh. I, I know Adobe won't be doing a, a Linux version anytime soon, and I doubt Camtasia will either. So if you're running them on Linux, I know there are a few solutions out there. I'm sorry, I don't know what they are. So I apologize for that. And then, of course, sitting down and doing the work is crucial. Yes? Is uh, Camtasia done by TextMod? Yes. Okay. Yeah, Camtasia, Jing, um, most of you probably use uh, their Snagit tool. All the same company. Jing is kind of a hybrid between Snagit and, uh, you know, and, and Camtasia Studio, and all online. It's really, check it out, definitely. You install a little piece in your browser. It works in Firefox or IE or Safari, I think. And it's impressive what they've done. The only problem is, of course, is I don't believe there's any way for you to get a hold of your presentation once it's done, unless you use, like, a plug-in in Firefox. The to Pro version allows you to do that now. Does it? Yeah, after you, after you grab the video, you can save it on your desktop as a flash file. Okay. That's crucial to a lot of companies. They won't like things staying there. Yes? I'm uh, imagining that when we're talking about screen sizes, that one thing that's important is some people do these presentations through their iPhones or you know, uh, their handouts. Yes. Yeah, they do. Almost all of them will. The problem with that is Flash. As you know, most of these devices do not really support Flash. So it's either going to be HTML-based. Um, the Windows mobile devices have a better time with Flash than iPhone. Or um, the, I don't know much about Android. I know it doesn't have Flash support yet because I've never used an Android. Um, you can get around these things. Like on the Windows Mobile platform, there's a, a browser called Skyfire, which runs Flash just fine because basically what it does, you download their web browser, they have a server, you make a call out to the server, it grabs the content, reformats it for your phone, then delivers it to your phone. So it actually does streaming, which most of these do not do. Opera, um, the Opera Mobile browser, and, and the Opera Mini, no, not Opera Mini, Opera Mobile. Mini. Mini. Gotcha. I get this too mixed it's up. Mini, it's on Blackberry, right? 
Mini runs on, yeah, Mini runs on, does it run on the iPhone yet? I don't know, I don't know. I, I thought it, I didn't think it was just for Blackberries. But, uh, mm -mm. Yeah. No, it runs on Windows Mobile, I've actually got it on mine. Cool. And it runs everything. But it's not as good as Flash, because it is a full local browser. Now you can download Flash Lite, which is Adobe's version of Flash just for mobile devices, and install that into a Windows Mobile device and that will help, but unless you really want to support people doing this, you don't want to tell them that, because that is kind of a, it's not a user-friendly process, installing that. But people are starting to use them more and more often. Is there any formats that are more user-friendly for handhelds besides the Um, HTML. Colin, can you repeat the question just so that the recording oh, captures it? Oh, gotcha. Is there any, is there any format that is more friendly, that is friendlier for a, for a mobile device? And yeah, HTML is. A lot of these browsers can support uh, limited AJAX and interactivity. Um, some can even support Java. But you just kind of want to keep it, if you're going to be aiming at a handheld audience, you want to keep it probably just in an HTML format where it's working just kind of by clicks. And these can do that. You can export them as HTML. Um, you can even export them as just, uh, if you want to create documentation from them, you can export them as PDFs, Word files, anything. I'm assuming that with HTML, it would be something where basically you click and then it turns on the sound file, turns it off, there's no fancy animation. No, and usually it'll be packaged rather than streaming. So. That can be an interesting little proposal unto itself. We're going to talk about publishing this in the next slide, I think. Okay. Oops. Uh, right click. Yeah. There you go. Cool. Um, post production is where we've taken our presentation. You know, we've got it all signed off, ready to go. Now we're going to launch it. Okay. So we're going to decide is it going to go on a CD, DVD? Is it going to go on a kiosk? Um, is it going to go into, you know, onto the web? You have to make it for multiple OSs. Is it going to go on television? Because these actually work really well on TV. Flash is an excellent... I'm surprised how often Flash is used in broadcast TV. Um, not for interactivity, but just for presentation. So, um, you know, if you're putting it on a CD and a DVD, of course you want to have a producer, you know, a CD burning house or a DVD burning house um, available and ready Make sure that they're going to produce it in your timeline that you want. You've signed a contract, gotten a price nailed down, and you've got delivery to wherever it's going to go. So, you know, that's really important to have that particular aspect of it. Once this leaves my hands, what am I going to do with it? What's going to happen to it? How am I going to get it to my, to, to my customers, my clients, my users, whatever? Um, and it's, it's actually a lot easier to do this on Mac and even Linux or Unix, because they don't really mess with a lot of auto-launchers. In fact, Mac, I don't even think, does auto-launchers anymore. Do they? I don't use Macintosh much, I'm sorry. They usually just mount the image. Yeah. Slide CD and mount the image manually from that. Yeah, so, you know, when it comes to Windows, though, you have to actually, some, a lot of the software now creates auto-launch files. They'll package it up as an EXE. They'll create an INI file. And if you even want to use an icon to represent your CD or DVD, it'll drop that in there in the proper place. Otherwise, you're making it yourself. 
And I was gonna bring, and this is the one thing I totally forgot, I was gonna bring an INI file so I could show you what it looks like if you haven't messed with one. It's a simple text. You're telling it, use this icon, it's located here, you know, and on startup you're going to run this program. That's basically all it is. It goes on the DVD or the CD, and, when, and if auto run is turned on, it'll just fire it up automatically and run it. Then of course you've got some flags to put on it, but it's really easy to find examples of how to make an INI file, and it's really just a text file with INI as the extension. So they're cake. You can't really mess them up, and there are tons of examples available online. So, you know, you want to make sure that your CD or DVD is written in a format that everything's going to be able to read it. And, you know, that's really it. Have someone design a label. Hopefully you're not doubling as a graphic designer too, because that sucks. Um, for me, I'm not, I, I'm a photographer, I'm not a, a, an artist. Um, you know, multiple OS's, you can put multiple OS's on one disc, that's perfectly fine. And a lot of these programs will do it for you. Captivate, for example, has selections, you know, Windows, Macintosh, Linux, and then boom, off it goes. Uh, broadcast, for television, you want to find out what the screen size is, what the ratio is. It was easy when I was doing television, because really, there's only one screen size to worry about. Now you've got 16 by one, 16 by nine, four by, you know, you've got all these different aspect ratios to worry about. Widescreen, high def, regular television, do you want it to fit in all of them? So these are questions you're really gonna wanna, if you don't know the answer, find someone who does. Because hopefully the people that came to you with a project know this. Because for us, it doesn't really matter, you know, when it's being produced, as long as we know what it is going to go to after we've got it made. So, and then print, print, believe it or not, these things work really well in print. If you use Adobe Captivate, for instance, you can actually export your script into a Word file, it has two columns, one with the script as it's been laid down, and one that allows you to edit it. This is great for localization, so you can drop your translation right in there. And then once you've made all your changes, you import it back into Captivate, and boom, all your boxes have changed. All your dialog boxes, they are exactly what you wanted the script to be. Um, you can export it as a PDF, uh, uh, slides, you know, separate slides, kind of like a PowerPoint presentation. In fact, the new version of Captivate even imports um, PowerPoint presentations without the interactivity, but you get a PowerPoint slide. And so do a lot of the others, actually. Um, I know Camtasia does that now, and I think even a couple of the less expensive and even free options do it. So, and then for mobile, the big trick with that is mobile's not quite ready for this yet. I have seen examples of it. I have a, an HTC uh, Touch Pro, and it actually has a screencast in it to show you how to use their touch flow. Um, it's their navigation layer that goes over Windows Mobile. Um, it shows you how to use it. Now, it's basically just animated GIFs in HTML. So, you can do it in these programs. You might actually be better off using something like Fireworks and, and, and just Dreamweaver to make them for mobile. In a year, I would be willing to bet you that's gonna be dramatically different. Because 
I do know that this year Adobe has said they're going to have Flash available for Windows Mobile, Android, and uh, the iPhone. And that's going to change everything. So, in a nutshell, go ahead and hit the next slide. I do believe that is pretty much it. I mean, you want to work with your graphic designer. Oh yeah, I remember. You want to work with your graphic designer to create packaging. Make sure that your CD house gets it. And when you give them the, the image, make sure it's an ISO. Because that's almost foolproof. There is a free program on Windows called L, LC ISO Creator. Um, it's free. It's really, really basic. Your IT department doesn't freak because you don't actually install an executable. You just drop it on your desktop and click. And it will burn an ISO from, uh, you know, from files. It'll just create an ISO. It's, it's really foolproof. Um, for web launch, you're going to get into things like you know, an FTP program, uploading it to a server. Um, on a lot of these programs, like Captivate, for instance, and Camtasia, you're going to make sure that you click a little button on there that says Streaming. And that will try and preload the content. We've all seen the flash load screens. That'll try and preload the content to a certain percentage, and then it'll start playing it while it loads the rest. Otherwise, it'll load the full presentation before it starts playing it. So again, if it's going to go on the web, you want to make sure that you set the streaming option for it. And make sure that if you think this is going to get hit hard at all, you make sure that you have your bandwidth all set up beforehand. Because a lot of the, a lot of the hosting companies will either shut you off when you exceed the bandwidth limitations or start charging you these hideous amounts if you start going over. And that can really upset clients if they're not ready for it. So realistic expectations, not like, you know, we're expecting a million people to hit this the first day it's up. That's not going to happen. <laughs> so not unless you did something viral that's really cool. So anyway, that is about it. Any questions at all? I kind of rushed through that, so. Um, I've been looking at webcams lately, mm -hmm. and I've been wondering how valuable or, or what's the, the benefit to having like a little... 10 second personal touch where uh, like you have a headshot of a guy saying, you know, in this tutorial you're going to learn about X, Y, and Z, and then it switches over to the screen. Is there any benefit, do you think, to having the, the little um, picture, a quick video of the actual narrator before you jump into it? And, and sorry, just for the recording, they're not going to hear my voice at all, so you might oh. want to summarize it. No, no, you just might want to summarize the question. During the question, I'll move, to, I'll move to where the person is. Okay. So is there any benefit to having like a talking head doing an yeah. intro? Yeah. Yeah. Depending on your audience. You know, if you're, if you're aiming your screencast at a bunch of uh, developers who are just, you know, we want to know how to create a WSDL, okay? A web service development, you know, component. We want to know how to make a WSDL. They don't need an introduction saying, in this tutorial, we're going to learn how to make a WSDL. <laughs> you know, you don't need that. Um, now, if you're, say, going to teach someone how to use their VCR or DVR, then yes. You'll want to tell them in each section, and you want to create separate movies for this, separate files for each one. You have a master file that will control all of them, and so they can click on it, or it will automatically seamlessly go into the next one. You don't want one huge, long movie, especially if it's web-based, because that just creates problems. Chunk it into the smallest components as possible. Otherwise, you run into streaming problems. Um, you know, 
Sometimes it doesn't happen often with Flash, but if you're using some of the other formats, you can lose synchronization on your audio and your video, which is nasty. Um, you know, you just, and also if, say, if they're sharing a bandwidth connection and their kid hops on and starts downloading a ton, ton of music or something like that, then, you know, a long movie is going to take forever to go through and it'll stop and start and it'll be a frustrating user experience. What's your time limit for small chunks? Like, what, what do you consider acceptable and unacceptable? Um, that really depends on, on bandwidth considerations. I usually do not like going longer than five minutes because if you try and record anything in a five minute chunk and you do it all successfully without stopping and starting and stopping and starting, for production purposes, if you can go longer than five minutes, you're rocking. You're on it. But um, five minutes, that's kind of like a magic number. People, even talent, even voice talent that's used to doing this, um, rarely if they have a, like, a, like a script in front that they're not really familiar with, they won't go much longer than five minutes without breaking. Because your brain just starts jumbling everything. So I wouldn't, yeah, five minutes would be about it. If it's, if you're going for a slow internet connection, because there are still people on dial-up, and this can be used for dial-up. A lot of these have bandwidth meters where you can actually look and see where your bandwidth is going. And you can make different options too. You can make one that doesn't have audio. Make one that doesn't have video and only audio. You know, you can really measure it to, be, to, to fit several bandwidth options. Um, even CD and DVD will choke sometimes if you have a lot of heavy duty video and a lot of motion going on because it's still running on a computer. And if you overload the processor, flash is a pig. All of us know it, you know. It'll slow down the computer just like that. So, yeah, don't go much longer than five minutes. I had another question. It's totally... Oh, it's okay. <laughs> Anyone else have any questions about this? How many of you actually use these or are going to or see it coming in your future? Have you used them before? They're relatively simple to learn. There are a lot of little tricks in them. Captivate, for instance, I always, you can set it with a button press when to record a, a slide. Um, one of the biggest things you'll find in, in any of these programs is if you're recording like a web page or something with transitions in it, I always record an extra one before I transition, click the mouse, that'll automatically set one, and then record another one immediately after the transitions happen because a lot of times it'll skip one of them. So it's better to have too many slides and cut it out than try and go back in, insert slides, and do whatever. I yes. Oh. The uh, products, what is the uh, simplest to use? I ask because uh, my team may actually do some training, but if I do, it'll be like, you know, a PowerPoint uh, conversion. You know? mm -hmm. Maybe if any animation will be very skippy, it'll be mostly, you know, here's slide, talking head, here's slide, you know, talking voice, here's slide, you know, kind of stuff like that. So what is relatively the simplest application that can still, you know, provide a reasonable result? The question is, what's the simplest application that will provide good results? Depends on your budget. If you've got a budget that can be like 700 bucks, buy Captivate <coughs> or Camtasia Studio because you never know when someone's going to think this is the coolest thing they've seen and they're going to want you to do more of them and it's going to start just exceeding what you've got. Also, Captivate is easy to, to learn. You know, it's got a lot of features in it, but if you just use it to just record screencasts, it's cake. Um, for some of the others, 
any of them, screencasting is really kind of an intuitive task. Um, most of them are really easy to use. Um, Wink has a little bit of a learning curve because it's developed by developers. And no offense if anyone's developers in here. Developers kind of think up here, whereas normal people think down here. Um, so, you know, it has more of a development edge to it. But any of them you can pick up really, really quickly. Most of the time it is set your screen size, set your what type of presentation you're creating, and then, you know, start going. Click, 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 and you're done. So, you also want a computer with a lot of RAM. This is a good time to ask for upgrades. If I, if I recall right, both Captivate and Camtasia are both Swarm compliant. What about the other applications they have out there? The other ones I do not believe can do that. That's kind of a specialized thing. Does everyone know what the Swarm and also, you create quizzes, it allows you to actually use multiple uh, scoring methods to, you know, like if you're in a training situation, you'll have a bunch of people to watch the thing and then they'll take a quiz afterwards. And then it'll grade them. That's, quizzing is really Captivate's strong point. Camtasia does it also. Um, I don't know that any of the others do. Which brings up a follow-up to that. Do you like, or have you been in a situation where you've had to develop quizzes and you, do you prefer using Captivate or Adobe's proprietary? Yeah. Yeah, I've been I've I've held the title of instructional designer before, <laughs> and we did a lot of training and quizzing, and it was a lot of government regu regulated uh, training. So uh, Captivate really is by far my favorite with that, and that's really kind of why I got hooked into Captivate. And it's gotten better. It is overpriced in my opinion, but what isn't from Adobe? <laughs> So, when you own the world, you can ask for a price. That's about right. Just by the whole technical communications. Yeah, I mean, really, that's kind of the best way to go because if you're using like RoboHelp or, or you know, I, RoboHelp comes with it, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It gives you easy See, I've been suckered into using InDesign to do tech writing. You wrote about that, didn't you? Uh, it's great for short stuff. Anyway, yeah, I'm writing a 400 page <laughs> manual in it. Oh, wow. So, anyway. That's not fun. Yes? I'm, I'm curious to know what your opinion is of voice talent. It seems like you have a good voice. When you record your stuff, don't, why would you need to go to a, a special reader? <sighs> that all depends. I've actually done voiceover work before, mostly with accents, because my bosses figured out that I could do accents really well, and I was somewhat animated, and they're like, yeah, okay, we need to put you in some commercials. <laughs> Um, it's a great gig if you can do it. Pays really well if you just not walk in there and like knock out a bunch of stuff in half an hour. You walk out with a fistload of cash. You're going, hey, this is sweet. But it's also people will um, stab you in the parking lot if they find out you're their competition and everything like that. So the reason you want the voice talent is simply professionalism. You know, it, it really is. I mean, when you hear the man who says, you know, he's dead now. In a time where there was no, you know, things like that, you recognize that voice and it automatically adds a caliber to your presentation that people are going to go, ooh, you know, gravelly voice guy. You know, they, they love that. Whereas if you have just someone who is like this, you know, and like does things, you know, it kills it. 
But Unless that's your audience. If, if you hire a voice talent to read your script, how does he or she know what pace to go at? Like if you, if, if there are instructions that say, click the file menu, select print, then choose this option. And he says it somewhat fast, but then when you're trying to like record the screen, it takes longer so the two don't really match up. Does that happen? I mean, how do you get around that? That happens a lot actually, which is why I really like having them use it as they're recording it. And also I've learned this with, with the talent, boss them around. Do not be afraid to get in their face and say, you will read this slower or I will pull out your teeth. Because I mean, they don't know. And a lot of times they're not familiar with what you're talking about here. So you really have to just tell them. This is a software product. It's aimed at, at, at people who are migrating off of AOL. Um, you need to start to speak slowly and at a measured pace use small words. Bread good, fire bad. That kind of thing. You just tell them that. And if they're going too fast, click. Can you slow down just a little bit? We need to, this is slated to last 30 seconds. You're doing it in 15. Spread it out. If they're a professional voice talent, they ought to be used to that. They'll be used to it. The directions and yeah. doing things over and over. And it is amazing what happens when you stick a mouse in their hand for software and tell them, I want you to use this while I record you. It's amazing what happens. <laughs> you know, and, and if they practice it, they start learning the, the product and begin to, you know, kind of get excited about it, which helps also. You know, for things like um, audio equipment, a little more difficult. You know, it's hard to record someone when they're actually using it. So then you really have to keep an eye on it. When it's hardware, you have to keep an eye on the pace and just tell them, you know. In each section, we, it's supposed to last 1 minute 27 seconds. We're going to do a reading. I'm going to time you. See if it needs to. We need to cut something, or if you need to just stretch it out a little bit. So that's why I use the stopwatch. Very, very handy. Yes. Hey, since you've done some research, I want to ask you just the difference between doing a, a simple screencast versus a full-on tutorial. There's obviously a huge difference as far as time between the two. Mm -hmm. What's the difference in retention? Yeah, the more interactive you get, the more people walk away with. I mean, if you're just stuck here, blah, 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 click, blah, 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 click. You know, people kind of tune out. We actually had formulas set up for PowerPoint presentations versus screencasts. You know, the PowerPoint slide, you don't talk more than 25 seconds. That's it. You don't write anything in there except for quick, brief bullet points. And maximum of seven lines. And any more, you've lost them. Screencasts, um, if it's a simple demo, you know, they're going to watch the mouse and you want to keep it quick, you want to keep it interesting. If it comes up with a screen, click the two-tibbles one. Oh no, it worked. Um, you know, you'll, you'll see it. You know, you'll, you'll, see, you'll see when people start kind of just on you. So screencasts, you want to keep them just short and interesting. Now, if it's a demo, like if you're doing a full software demo or a full website demo, like a lot of these can do, um, depending on the amount of interactivity that you have, I mean, these things are so are, are advanced enough nowadays that you can actually have search boxes where they're typing in things and hitting enter and it'll go find it. And 
you know, they click on a button and it launches like multiple windows and, you know, things like that. It can actually seem like the software or the website. And a lot of work I've done with this has actually been, you know, conceptualizing a website that a client wants. You know, it's not there yet, but they want to see how the website works. So we have all the graphic elements in place. We actually create a fully working website for them and they can click on it and use it. You, you mean you use, you use this for like prototyping with clients? Oh yeah. It's awesome for prototyping. One of the secret hidden things about screencast software is that it works really well for prototyping entire websites. And it's very handy too, because they give you a basic idea and it's like a, you know, you're, you're at the point where you're doing user experience work and you want to measure flow and see how easy it is for people to use. Once you get past that paper, I don't know how many of you deal a lot with user activity, user experience, but a lot of times they'll draw it out on paper and they'll say, okay, you want to do this, what button would you push? And the person will point to the paper. Well, the next step is to do a mock-up and that's, I use Captivate or a lot of these programs for mock-ups on websites. Works phenomenally well. In fact, I even think you can hook, the, hook Captivate into a database now. Wow. To produce specific data. So, you can definitely do it with text files. If you know any action script, you can get in the action script on Captivate and you can actually do it, have it pull, you know, text files full of flat data, XML files, things like that. So it works really, really well. There's and a huge difference in workflow, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, you do a five minute just demo tutorial and it takes you a few hours. You do an interactive tutorial and it takes you five minutes. How long? A day? No, I've worked on full demo tutorials like software simulations for six months. Depends on how picky the client is. Ideally, if you've got everything, it will take you a couple weeks to do, if it's big. For five minutes. Well. Let's put it at a five minute. At, at a five minute? Yeah. Five minutes. Um, usually about an hour a minute is what you're looking at. That's reasonable if you're doing a, a fairly simple screencast and you have a lot of your elements already created for you. You know, if you're just, if you've got everything and you're making the screencast, about an hour a minute. So that's assuming you're already done with the storyboard. Yeah. Yeah, I mean storyboarding, it can, it depends on how well conceptualized this is. You know, storyboarding is kind of a wild card because if you've got everyone on board and they're really excited about it, storyboarding can take a day or less. If you've got a lot of politics to play, which we never do, um, and a lot of buy-off buy to get, and you have to meet with a lot of different departments. This part has a good engineering, marketing, the developers, the executives, you know, it's gonna take a lot longer. And to get them all on the same page, you pretty much have to lock him in a room with a sign-off sheet to get it to work. So, but yeah, I, if you're just doing the straight screencast, hour a minute is, you know, a comfortable pace. Um, if you're doing like a full demo, four hours a minute is about what I've timed out. Yes? Uh, regarding, and I know this is uh, a big topic, but regarding the sound. Yes. I mean, I've played around with my computer where I try to record my voice, and I get weird things like, you know, either, you know, hissing and stuff, or, you know, some kind of feedback where you hear this background and stuff like that. Uh, in terms of sound, uh, is there any type of like video or uh, 
video or a sound card that you uh, recommend that you put in your computer. You know, sound cards, um, I prefer anything that's not onboard sound. By onboard, I mean it's on the motherboard and you don't have a separate sound card. Um, sound isn't really all that tricky unless your computer's fairly low powered or doesn't have enough memory and it's hitting the hard drive a lot. Because these do use a lot of caching on your hard drive. And so you want to make sure you've got the, the bandwidth to not stop what you're doing while it's caching. Sound, not a big problem. I actually use um, Audacity to record my sound. It's a free program. You can even, it's even installable on um, USB drives. That works great for 90% of what I do. Then I have, um, I forgot what Adobe's is called. It used to be, um, well, so, um, so, yeah, it might be Soundbooth. It's Adobe's version, they bought CoolEdit Pro and it's whatever they renamed it. That's what I use if I'm doing really heavy duty uh, sound work where I'm mixing audio tracks, like voice with music and sound effects and things like that. It's just, it, it's a lot more seamless, you know, than Audacity is. So hardware is as important as the software? Not for sound. I recommend having an, uh, an, uh, you know, a sound card, an actual sound card like a Sound Blaster. Okay. Really a Sound Blaster. It's just an external card that goes to your Yeah, yeah, it's like a PCI card. And even that's not fully necessary, but the problem that I mentioned at the beginning of this where I found out that Captivate wasn't compatible with, it was Realtek drivers. And Realtek is what's in 90% of your PCs that have an onboard sound card. And it wasn't compatible with it. It couldn't pick up the audio at all. So for that reason alone, just so you don't have to go out and mess with drivers or anything like that, make them get you a, a sound card. It can either be a USB external sound card or one that plugs in the slot in the motherboard. For video, you're gonna want a video card with a decent amount of RAM. That's, that's fairly quick. A lot of the cameras, unless you're using like a professional rig, will um, hook up through USB. Um, the more high-end gear will hook up through Firewire. So you need to find out if your camera is USB or Firewire and make sure that you've got a, a connection for that. And then Apple's come out with a couple other, they killed Firewire and came out with their own proprietary thing and I don't even know what that is. It's an octopus. So, but yeah, good, a, good, a decent sound card, good video card, and a lot of RAM, and you're probably in good shape. Defrag before you do it, you know, the day before you do it. Um, also, uh, make your desktop as plain as possible. Kill any wallpaper. Uh, don't have a lot of windows open. If you're using multiple monitors, record on the on a screen that doesn't have anything on it, and use fairly vanilla um, color schemes because you want it to be universal for the user experience. And if anything hits your desktop, you don't want like a like the crazy stabby monkey appearing on the background or anything like that. <laughs> or have or have you know be using anything like like um you know some of the launcher programs that are custom, that you like, but not everyone knows what they are, because then people think, this is recorded in Windows, you know, or, or Macintosh, I don't know, you know, they freak. So, oh yeah, definitely shut off your screensaver. A lot of them kill up for you automatically or won't let you record while you have a screensaver on. So, they'll have a couple other things they'll tell you. Some of them throw up warnings about odd things, you know, shut off any, any 
Um, obviously, if you're using the online tools, you don't want instant messaging going or anything. You're in the middle of a roll, and all of a sudden this window pops up. Hey, we going out for drinks? There's a, you know, you don't want that. That's bad. So, <laughs> it's not good. Have you tried or have you made a portable audio recording box? A portable audio? I've got that right there. No, no, soundbox. Oh, a soundbox. You know, I get really clever with that. Um, Luckily, I've got, a, I've got a fair amount of audio experience. Um, probably the best thing that I've done is, yeah, we actually turned a closet into a sound booth. And you don't need anything fancy, even if you're just getting sheets, you know, just linen sheets. Um, the best rule of thumb to remember is if it reflects any light, it reflects sound too. So you want something heavy you know, that's not shiny or, or zippy when you touch it. Ripstop nylon, not good. Um, cotton sheets or a wool blanket, awesome. And tack them to the walls and put them over the door and just make it so the whole room is a big giant blanket. And then record. And if you can, have your paper sitting on like a paper holder. Don't touch it and have your microphone like right here. So you're talking just normal and have a pop filter on it. I've got one in that bag, but you just want it like right here. And this is how you record your audio. You don't talk loud and you just record it like this. Blah, 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 blah. And it works great. Because the closer it is to your mouth, the less chance it's going to have of reflecting any sound or catching any acoustic stray, you know, things that come across. So you just want to shorten that distance as much as possible so that it doesn't, not, so nothing external influences your sound. Same thing goes with video. You know, it's nice to have them on, it's nice to have them on a rather neutral background with no movement in the back, behind them at all, and no light shifting. You know, like leaves going through light or filtered sunlight that's gonna change during the course of the transmission. Because again, when it goes through a codec and is turned into an audio, in, into a web presentation, any movement increases bandwidth and reduces the video quality, so as steady as possible. And if you try green screening, that's a whole other class unto itself. Green screening is easier now, but it's not fun. <laughs> Unless you like video. So, any other questions at all? Yes? I was just going to say, I use Audacity too, but um, you know, just when I have all those $20 microphones from Logitech, whatever they put into your computer, and it cancels sound that's outside of a certain area that's right around the microphone. So I think for me that helps a lot with, you know, even if I'm, in, if I'm in a room that's mostly quiet, but sometimes you can hear somebody talk on the other side of the wall. If I'm far enough away from the wall, the microphone doesn't even pick it up. Yeah. So it, it, can, it cancels out. The microphones they make now usually will cancel out a lot of background noise. You know, with microphones the best, if you're recording voice, it's best to use an, uh, a, 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 like a omnidirectional is it, no, unidirectional. Cardioid? Cardioid pattern is kind of like this. It doesn't catch things behind it, but it catches stuff from the center out. You know, it's kind of like this mushroom head pattern. And those are good for just doing, like, if it's a conversation and you've got two people sitting at a desk, like you and I are sitting right here and the recorder's like right there, a cardioid pattern's great because then it'll catch our conversation. Um, if you're just going to be capturing voice, you want a, a, a unidirectional mic, which pretty much goes out at a 45 degree cone. 
Um, if you're going to catch everything environmental, you want an omnidirectional microphone. You know, like this little thing is under 200 bucks. It records 5.1 Dolby 4-channel sound if I want it to. Or, you know, as it's doing right now, just a 90-degree pattern. So it's not catching anything from the back mics right now, but it's catching stuff right now when I turn towards it. Or else I can record in full surround sound. And it's a nice cheap option. You've got this one that Tom has, which is its big brother. Which, I don't know how that records. It'll be interesting to hear it, especially with me moving and flapping around like this. So if you can, have them wear a lapel mic. Because that way, if they turn, they're not going to turn away from the mic. Whereas that thing, if I walk over here and keep my back to it, it's not going to hear me. So. Yeah, duct tape does wonders. Also, always use a, a, a pop filter, even if you have to make one. I mean, the best way to make one is get toilet paper and tape. Just wrap it around like a big old ball and then just tape it to the bottom so it's not going to move. Because you'd be amazed what they pick up as far as popping goes. If you're in wind, forget it. Get out of wind. I mean, they're, they're really expensive mics that work really well in the wind. And a pop filter will help you a lot in the wind, but man, you're doomed. Because your peas make it pop. Yeah, it's, it, you can hear it. It's like someone's just going thunk, 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 and it just distorts everything. And a lot of them do auto leveling. So if it hits something really loud to protect the microphone and protect the equipment, it'll drop the level and then slowly raise it back up. So you get all these level inconsistencies going. Then you have to run like a normalizer on it, which any processing you do on sound or video or, or a picture decreases the quality. So. I'm going to keep it as pure as you can. For web-based stuff, that's not a big deal. If you're putting this in a kiosk and playing it, you know, for six hours straight at a, on a convention floor, it gets to be a bigger deal. So, any others? All right. You're welcome. Thank you.